Good morning. We just sang that Christ has the words of eternal life, and that's exactly where we're going to go, to the words of eternal life. So turn to John chapter 3 with me. We're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 15. Uh, When you find it, go ahead and stand with me, and we'll go ahead, we will read it together. John 3, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And God, we pray that you today would save people, give people eternal life. We pray that today you would cause people to be born again through your word, Lord. I pray that you would humble me and humble us and help us to submit to your word, Lord. God, help me to preach with clarity, with boldness. Let Christ be exalted. Let Christ be lifted up. Show us Christ. Let your glory be revealed through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What if, what if God gave Satan total control over a city or a country? What would it look like? You're the loudest service. First and second hour, we're, we're, uh, we're louder. You're supposed to be the loud service. What would it look like? Orange. Who said Vegas? Oh, that doesn't count. You're my wife. So my wife, my wife was actually, I was going to say this planned, but she, uh, no, when I asked her earlier this week, her first, immediately, Las Vegas. And I asked some other people and I got all different kinds of answers. I got Sodom and Gomorrah. I got uh, a place with lots of violence, a place with lots of sexual promiscuity, a place that's really destitute in poverty. Uh, 
I got a place where false religion reigns, so a place like where Islam or, or one of the cults is in total control. Um, all, all different kinds of places. It's interesting. An old preacher was asked this question once, and he didn't say any of those. What he said was, if Satan had total control of a city, the streets would get cleaned up, the bars would get closed, the nightclubs would close down, everyone would start going to church, children would respect their parents, people would stop swearing, stop drinking. But in those churches, Christ would not be preached. In those churches, people would not have genuine saving faith. They'd have morality, they'd look great on the outside, but they wouldn't have real faith. Now, whether he was right or wrong, we're going to be looking at someone today who, if anyone should have been saved by what they did, he should have. If anyone's earning their way into heaven, it was Nicodemus. If anyone has a hope of earning their way to God, it was this man. And yet, we're going to see that it wasn't enough. So as we look, we've got to get our bearings in the context, first of all. And, and so Jesus has been doing these signs. It's the Passover time. It's crowded. Think Disneyland on a busy day. Uh, sweaty, hot people walking everywhere. And we've got to ask ourselves, why this man, why this conversation, and why this place in the Gospels? Why? I mean, there, Jesus had many conversations in Jerusalem, and there's many people there why drag this one conversation out, drag it to the front of the gospel and put it right in the front? See, this is the first kind of extended dialogue of Jesus in John. So John is highlighting this for us and saying, whatever is in here, it's vital. Whatever is in here, he's almost saying, uh, before you get any further in what Jesus taught, you need to start here. And so we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention because this is, this is heaven and hell. This is life and death. You won't go to heaven because you memorized all the books of the Bible or said all your wanna verses or could tell me the exact dimensions of Solomon's temple. You won't be cast into hell because you weren't pretty enough or you weren't smart enough or you weren't strong enough or you weren't wise enough. But you must be born again. Nicodemus learned this. No amount of good deeds will earn you a cent of credit in heaven. No amount of feeding the hungry, caring for the poor or the sick, no amount of social justice, religious zeal, education, intellect. It's not enough. You must be born again. And Jesus doesn't tell Nicodemus, you need to understand this truth about the new birth. You need to agree with it. You need to give intellectual assent to this. You need to nod along in church as, as I talk about it. No, that's not what he says. He says, you must be born again. And he says that to me and he says that to you today. You must be born again. You must have spiritual life put into your spiritually dead soul. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to look, it breaks down, our passage breaks down into three nice chunks. Nicodemus talks, Jesus answers. Nicodemus talks, Jesus answers. Nicodemus, Jesus. So that's going to be three things that we look at. And we're going to see Nicodemus' insufficiency, Nicodemus' inability, and Nicodemus' only hope. So those are the three sections. Hopefully that will help, help you follow along. 
But the first thing that we're going to look at is Nicodemus's insufficiency. Who was this guy? Who, who is this man? So let's look, look down in verse 1. He says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Okay, step number one, he's a man. In that culture, that mattered. That was a, that was a plus. There were, women weren't treated equally, and so he's a man? He's a man of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were hypocrites, and so we rightfully see them depicted poorly in the Gospels. But you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees were kind of the main parties. And so the Sadducees are much more like the liberals of their day, to paint broadly. They, they said, we believe the Bible, but they said, there's no miracles, there's no heaven and hell, there's no angels and demons, there's no, they, they sort of said that they believe the Bible, but they rejected what it said. And then the Pharisees were actually like the conservatives. These were the ones that said, back to the word, back to what the word says. Sure, they added to it, and they were hypocrites. But they were the conservatives of their day. They were the Bible believers. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in life after death, heaven and hell, angels and demons. They had the right beliefs for the most part, and they were loved by the common people, generally. Because the Sadducees, they're the rich guys that go play with the Romans and do the political thing. But the Pharisees, they're the ones that stuck true to the word. Most of them were businessmen, kind of common middle-class people. So they were well-liked. And Nicodemus isn't just a regular Pharisee. Look, it says he's a ruler of the Jews. That means he was on what's called the Sanhedrin. It's the, think of the Supreme Court of Israel. 70 men, and what does this tell us about Nicodemus? He had to have been educated. He had to have served in lower courts for a long time, and he had to be well-liked and morally respected. So this is the guy, when, if you ask a Jewish person back then, and you say, well, who's going to heaven? They're all pointing at Nicodemus. He is. He's the Jew of the Jews. And later in verse 10, we find out he's the teacher of Israel. He has good credentials. Nicodemus's credentials are great. And look at his profession. This is a warning to us. Look at how much he gets right here, but he still misses it. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Well, first of all, he calls him Rabbi. The teacher of Israel, the Pharisee, the member of the Sanhedrin, comes to a guy from Nazareth who didn't go to the schools that they had, essentially a nobody, his ministry is barely starting, and he calls him rabbi. He puts, Nicodemus is the rabbi, but he puts him on the same level. He shows great respect for Jesus. Then he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He acknowledges Jesus as a teacher. Plenty of people will say Jesus was a great teacher. He even says Jesus is a teacher from God. We know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do. He believed Jesus' miracles. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. And he acknowledged God was with him. He got a lot right, didn't he? That's scary. Nicodemus, his list of credentials, he's got it all. Except the one prerequisite. He had everything except the one thing. So his credentials are great, but what's his condition? What's Nicodemus's condition? Well, 
Just before this story, John tells us that Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows man's heart, and so when Nicodemus comes to him, he cuts right to the middle. He says, I'm not playing this rabbi game. I'm not playing your game. I'm going to cut right to the heart, get right to the issue. And he says in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Despite all his credentials, his condition is that he's spiritually dead. He's dead in sin. And all his good works, it's like if we had a corpse laying up here next to me on the stage. And we go out and we find him the best leather shoes we can find, some great socks, custom-tailored suit, beautiful tie, cologne. I mean, we really go all out with this guy. The end, he's still rotting. He's still dead. That's what Nicodemus' works are in in God's sight. And that's the testimony of Scripture about us. Throughout the whole Bible, there's three chapters where sin isn't in the Bible. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Revelation 22. From all the other parts in the middle, it's solid testimony about humanity is this. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 2, before you were believers, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Literally, apart, apart from Christ, our deeds, our righteous deeds are like a menstrual cloth in his sight. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, good, not even one. That's pretty bleak. But that's what Scripture says about the human heart apart from Christ. We are dead in sin. Nicodemus was dead in sin. And you can put all the clothes you want on that corpse, but he ain't come back to life. Now, I'm not saying that man can do nothing whatsoever good. In relation to his fellow man, man can do good. Man can benefit his fellow man. But in relation to God, no. It's like building a house of cards. You might be better than I am, but for me, you put two together and they fall. Two together and they fall. And again, and again. And Nicodemus' pile of works, it's like that. He never gets any higher. He's, at the end, he's still exactly where he was, flat on the ground. And so the question for us then, do you see yourself as bankrupt before God? Do you see yourself as coming before God and saying, I have nothing to offer. I don't have a cent of credit in heaven's bank. And when you stand before him, and you will stand before him, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, I was a, good, I was a generally good person. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't murder anyone. I didn't commit adultery. Or I went to church. I read my Bible. I had quiet time every day. That's not enough. 
My prayer for me and my prayer for you is that we would be able to swing out into eternity on one spider's thread and say, only Christ, only what he's done. I have nothing to offer, but Christ gives me his righteousness and he's enough. So Nicodemus was insufficient. He wasn't good enough to get in. Wasn't good enough to be saved. He is dead in sin. And apart from Christ, we are dead in sin. So do you see yourself as bankrupt before God? Or is there something about you that might recommend you to Him? Something about you that might make you a little bit better? No, there's nothing. So Nicodemus's insufficiency, and then we turn and look at Nicodemus's inability. It actually gets worse somehow. See, when we talk about the new birth, I hinted at this, but just to be clear, we're talking about the God giving spiritual life to the spiritual de- spiritually dead. That's what the new birth is. God giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead. And Jesus has just told Nicodemus, despite all your list of credentials, you are spiritually dead. But he makes it worse because then he says, not only are you dead, but if we had this corpse up here, could that corpse raise himself from the dead? Assuming he's not Jesus? Could he? No. Someone has to do something for that corpse. Someone has to act on it. God has to do a miracle and raise him from the dead. And so Nicodemus' inability, what Jesus is going to do right here is he gives us two metaphors. He talks about natural birth and he talks about the wind. And he uses both of those metaphors to point to one reality. So let's look first at the natural birth metaphor. He says, Nicodemus says in verse four, and I think he's genuinely confused. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is using the analogy of natural birth, but what does he mean by water and the Spirit? That's confusing. Now, m- most people are agreed on the Spirit. The Spirit's understandable. Okay, yeah, I need, need the Holy Spirit to give me life if I'm spiritually dead. But Jesus, what are you talking about with the water? Well, there's a few options, and I'm just going to give you a quick line of reasoning for each one, and then uh, you can talk to me after if you want to talk more about it. But some people think it's water baptism that you need to be baptized and have spiritual life given to you. Well, here's the problem with that. I think that contradicts the rest of the New Testament because Ephesians 2 and other places tell us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. And so I don't, I, I don't think that fits. It can't be that you must be baptized in water or you're not saved. That just doesn't fit. Well, it could be physical birth, He's telling Nicodemus, you have to be born physically and you have to be born spiritually. And as you read it, the context even makes it feel like, yeah, that might be right. Um, but here's the problem. Lord willing, in a couple months, uh, my wife will have our first child. And also, Lord willing, we will say that her water broke. In our culture, we associate water with pregnancy and with birth. But we want to know, what did Jesus mean and how would Nicodemus have taken this? And they didn't associate water with birth. It's highly, highly unlikely that Nicodemus would have ever heard water in the spirit and thought, oh, physical birth. They just didn't, it wasn't an association that was made. Now, 
it could be that he's referencing John's baptism. But I think there's a better answer. I think, I think the better answer is this. If you go online and you go to ESV and you type uh, water and you do a search in the Old Testament, you don't need Greek, you don't need seminary, you just esv.org, search water for the Old Testament. You find tons of references and tons in the ceremonial law where someone would be unclean and you sprinkle water on them. To, to cleanse them. So a house would be unclean, you sprinkle water on it to cleanse it over and over and over and over and over again. And so Nicodemus probably has water tied to cleansing. That's what triggers in his mind. And there's actually a place that Jesus might even be explicitly referencing. So turn with me. We're going to actually park here for a minute in Ezekiel 36. Turn back to Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, God is talking to his people about the new covenant that he's going to make with them. We've been going along down the road. We're going to pull over and kind of make a little detour right here and park for a second, and then we'll, we'll get back where we're going. But Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25, God's speaking to his people, and he, he says, He's referring to the new covenant and he's saying that I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, un uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." I think, you see the tie, spirit and water are even tied together in that verse. So I think what Jesus is getting at when he says, you must be born again by the water and the spirit, what he's saying is you need spiritual cleansing from your sin and life from the spirit. You need to be cleansed and, and regenerated, made new, born again. Nicodemus, you're spiritually dead and you must be given spiritual life. So he says that, but where we're going to pull off to the side a little bit and take a scenic route is this. We've been talking about the new birth, and I've told you that it's when God gives a spiritually dead person spiritual life. But this, these verses give us some insight into really what, it, what God does. So he says in 26 that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. The core of the new birth, the core of being born again, the heart of the issue is that you get a new heart. The heart in Hebrew has to do with the mind, will, and emotions. It's the mission control center, you might say, of your person. And so God says, I am going to change you fundamentally. We talk about with junior high, we talk about this. The human heart, the dead and sin human heart, if I make a scale like this, and I say on this side is the treasures of Christ and the beauty of Jesus Christ, and on this side I put the ugliness of sin, the natural human heart says, I want sin, 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 every time. That's what it means to be dead in sin. So what God is saying when he says, I'm going to give you a new heart, look, he describes it as a heart of stone. The unbelieving heart is hardened to the things of God. Remember our corpse on the ground over here? 
Okay, he's back on the ground, and I take handfuls of diamonds, and I walk up to him, and I show him the diamonds. What does he do? Nothing. I take a poisonous snake, and I throw it on him. What does he do? Nothing. Now, we make that man alive. I take the same diamonds. I walk back over to him. I show it to him, and he says, oh, wow, those are worth millions. I take the same man, I make him alive, and I throw a poisonous snake on him, and he runs away, or screams, or whatever you do when someone throws a snake on you. That's the new birth. That's what it means to be a Christian. My, my heart towards God was bored, dead. I hated him. And the God I used to hate, I now love. And the sin that I used to love, I now hate. It's total 180. That's, that is the core of what it means to be born again. That God supernaturally, through a miracle, because we would never choose him, miraculously imparts spiritual life. And when he does that, he gives you a new heart that longs for and loves him. Peter says that we long for the word like newborn babies. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you don't struggle to read the word or have dry seasons. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you don't have any longing for this word, I wonder if you're born again. You should wonder if you're born again. Do you talk to him? Do you want him? Do you ever slip away to pray just because you want to be with him? I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about a pattern of life. Has God given you a new heart? Okay, we're getting back on the road. We're, we're back on track. So he uses the birth analogy and the wind analogy. The point of the birth analogy, why talk about birth? Why use human birth? Because the point he's making is this. Nicodemus, as much as you contributed, as much effort as you put in to your natural birth, that's how much goes into your spiritual birth. Same thing with the wind. Look, he's going to say, turn back to John 3 with me. If you're still in Ezekiel, let's go back to John 3. Now, I don't want to skip over this. He does say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, you can't do this in your flesh. Flesh can't cause a spiritual rebirth. It can't happen. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, here comes the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's the relationship? What does wind have to do with being born again? Well, it's this. Look at what he emphasizes. The wind blows wherever it wants, and you hear you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Here's his point. The wind, Nicodemus, you can't control it. It's out of your control, and it's seen in its effects. You see its effects. You hear it. You might see the leaves rustle, but you can't control it. Same with the spirit. Same with new birth. I can't produce spiritual life in you. I can't manufacture it. I can't synthesize it. I can't turn the lights down and get you to do it. I can't get you to raise your hand and make a decision, and then you're saved. It is only if God gives you new birth. Now, he might give you new birth and you raise your hand and make a decision and that, that's genuine faith. But I can't emotionally manipulate you into salvation. I could manipulate you into getting you to raise your hand. I could get Alex to sing just the right songs, but God has to do something.
God is in control of salvation. It's from him, it's through him, it's to him, it's for him. It's all about him. And as a side note, don't be ashamed of this gospel. I was so sad, I read a thing this week from a a different church that said, what's the gospel? They didn't talk about sin at all. Don't be ashamed of this. Tell people that they're dead in sin and offer Christ as the solution and the spirit will work. Don't be ashamed of this gospel. So we can't manufacture it. Now, someone's gonna throw their hand up pretty soon and say, wait a minute, what about free will? I'm glad you asked. We're gonna talk more about it with Jesus' last response, but for right now, there's a helpful analogy. Imagine a professor and he's very gracious to his students. He lets them turn things in late, he lets them miss deadlines, and he still takes the assignment. And throughout the semester, this goes on and on, and finally, the final comes around. And the kids are all doing work for other classes because they know, well, this guy will let us turn in late, so we can put his work off and we'll do the other classes. Well, he decides, the professor says, you know what, I I need this in on time, you're gonna get a zero if it's late. And they all say, that's not fair. And he says, oh, I get it now. You want me to be fair. I am so sorry. I apologize for being unfair to you. I'm going to go back. I'm going to give you all zeros for your late papers because you want me to be fair. See, God is never under obligation to be gracious. If God let me and let you and let every human in history run to hell, and we would, he wouldn't be any less good. In fact, the angels would praise him still. If, if God lets Andrew McNeil go to hell, the angels sing praises to him. Praise you, Lord, for ridding the earth of a sinner like that. He is not any less gracious. And yet we know that he is gracious and he does show grace. But do you see how easy it is to get man-centered? We get it all flipped upside down. It's all about him. So salvation belongs to the Lord. Nicodemus, you are dead in your sin. And Nicodemus, unfortunately, you, you can't raise yourself. You, you can't make yourself have spiritual life. So we've seen Nicodemus' insufficiency. We've seen Nicodemus' inability. And now we see Nicodemus' only hope. Starting in verse 9, we start to see the effects of being dead in sin. Starting in verse 9, Nicodemus says to him, and he, I don't think he's confused anymore. I think he's, here he's saying, you've, you've destroyed my whole life. You have ripped down every brick in the wall of righteousness that I've built. And now he's saying, how, how, how can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus, I told Adam that he would surely die in the day that he ate the fruit. You know the story and Adam lived 900 more years. Nicodemus, you didn't realize that he died spiritually and that you've been dead in your sin? Nicodemus, I put water as a cleansing symbol throughout the entire Old Testament and you don't realize that you need cleansing from your sin? You think that you can earn your way? You forgot Genesis 15 that Abraham was justified by faith? Nicodemus, see, the effect of being dead in sin is spiritual blindness. And this is terrifying. This is, I can read my Bible every day and miss it. 
And the second effect is unbelief. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. He's probably referencing the prophets and the word, uh, the Old Testament. And so he's saying, you've rejected the testimony of the scripture and of the prophets. If I have told you earthly things, if I talk to you about birth and about wind, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's the heart of stone. That's, that is the effects of deadness and sin, spiritual blindness and unbelief. But there's hope. Jesus says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus, I've torn your whole world apart, but you know what? I am from heaven. I am the revealer of spiritual truth, and if you come to me, I will teach you. No one can teach you, but I can. I came down from heaven. And then he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he's referencing back to Numbers 21. What happened was the Israelites were complaining and God sent snakes in to bite them and kill them. It's kind of interesting to see what God thinks about complaining. Uh, He sends snakes in to bite them and to kill them and he tells Moses, make a staff, a stick, put a metal serpent on it and hold it up and whoever looks at that will be saved if they get bit. And Jesus takes this amazing picture and says, that's pointing to me. That's pointing to me. And Jesus was lifted up. And I think it's amazing because we have on the one side, Nicodemus, you're dead in your sin. Nicodemus, you can't do anything about it. It's a sovereign act of God that he must do. And yet, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Those are two train tracks that you can't rip apart. Keep those together and don't try to to explain them away. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And God can say, look at the freeness. Whoever, whoever in this room, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And when we go out and we share the gospel, that's the call. You are dead in sin. But if you believe and it's to whoever, it's both. It's both. So whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So trust in him. Cling to him like the mast on a sailboat that's caught in a storm. Run to him, go to him. This Jesus, when he hung on the cross, why do we make such a big deal about the cross? Why are Christians always talking about the cross? Because on that cross, Jesus, the God-man, swallowed hell for you in three hours. If you trust in him, he took all the punishment, all the wrath, all the guilt, all the anger that should have fallen on me and should have fallen on you, and he bore it because he was able to. What kind of man is that? He bore it and then he was able to raise himself from the dead as a public proclamation of his victory and whoever trusts in him will have eternal life. If God has worked in your heart as I am speaking this morning, has imparted new life to you, you can believe in him now. Whoever will believe, he will give you eternal life. But if you reject him, If you cling to yourself, cling to the credentials like Nicodemus, 
There's no hope. Jesus is the only hope. It's fascinating. This is not the end of Nicodemus' story. If you go further in John, you flip over to chapter 7. You guys don't go to 7 with me, but in 7, he makes this passing comment. They're about to kill Jesus, and he basically says, hey, shouldn't we give him a trial instead of just killing him? And so you get this clue like, oh, maybe something's going on with Nicodemus. Maybe something has changed. And then you can flip over here. If you go right in your Bible a little bit further, you get to John 19. You, you flip over to John 19, and down in verse 38, something really interesting is going on. Jesus has been crucified And in verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he, took, so he came and took away his body. Now look at verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. That was a public proclamation of faith. In that community, in that culture, you bring 75 pounds and you help bury the man that they just crucified as an insurrectionist? That was, that was a public proclamation of his faith. And it's fascinating. If you read it in church history, it seems that Nicodemus actually was baptized by Peter and John, was kicked out of the Sanhedrin and out of the Pharisees, was kicked out of Jerusalem, lost everything, and was buried in a common grave with Stephen, the first martyr. He lost everything, but he got the one thing. So the question now to you is have you been born again? Not do you go to church, not do you read your Bible, not do you pray, not have you done enough, not are you moral, not have you raised your kids the right way. No, are you born again? Has God given you a new heart? Can you say, I was dead in sin and I was dead to the things of God. He showed me the diamonds of faith and, I, and of the word and of God's truth and I, whatever. But then he did something to me and he made me alive and now I see him and I want him and I long for him and I struggle still, but he's changed my heart fundamentally. That's what the new birth is. That's the question. Have you been born again? Let's pray. God, you are so good and kind and you've recorded this story for us so that we would know this amazing and vital truth. God, please cause people to be born again even here. We trust you. We depend on you. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We love you. Help us to trust you more, to love you more. Give us joy in Christ today. Amen.